2 Chronicles chapter 3. Then Solomon began to build Yahweh's house at Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh appeared to David his father, which he prepared in the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build in the second day of the second month in the fourth year of his reign. Now these are the foundations which Solomon laid for the building of God's house. The length was, sorry, the length by cubits after the first measure was 60 cubits, and the width 20 cubits. The porch that was in front, its length according to the width of the house was 20 cubits, and the height 120. And he overlaid it within with pure gold. He made the larger room with a ceiling of cypress wood, which he overlaid with fine gold and ornamented it with palm trees and chains. He decorated the house with precious stones for beauty. The gold was gold from Parvaim. He also overlaid the house, the beams, the threshold, its walls and its doors with gold and engraved cherubim on the walls. He made the most holy place. Its length according to the width of the house was 20 cubits and its width 20 cubits. And he overlaid it with fine gold amounting to 600 talents. The weight of the nails was 50 shekels of gold. He overlaid the upper rooms with gold. In the most holy place, he made two cherubim by carving, and they overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim were 20 cubits long. The wings of the one was five cubits, reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was five cubits, reaching to the wing of the other cherub. The wing of the other cherub was five cubits, reaching to the wall of the house, and the other wing was five cubits joining to the wing of the other cherub. The wings of these cherubim spread themselves out 20 cubits. They stood on their feet, and their faces were toward the house. He made the veil of blue, purple, crimson, and fine linen, and ornamented it with cherubim. Also, he made before the house two pillars of 35 cubits height, and the capital that was on top of each of them was five cubits. He made chains in the inner sanctuary, and put them on tops of the pillars, and he made 100 pomegranates and put them on the chains. He set up the pillars before the temple, one on the right hand and the other on the left, and called the name of that on the left on the right hand, Jachin, and the name of that on the left, Boaz. That was just a short little chapter of about 17 verses, but there's actually a lot that we could talk about in this chapter, believe it or not. So... Uh, some of these are not really spiritually connected to each other, but we're just going to go through them all. The first thing is that there are two numerical discrepancies here with um, the Second Kings account. So, I'll give you the first one. The first one, when we were going through the heights and the measurements, it said that the temple, they laid the, laid the foundation, the temple was 60 cubits long, um, now, a cubit, by the way, is 48 centimetres, which means, well, there's different ways of measuring cubits, but that's one measurement, about 48. I like, in my mind, to round a cubit up to 50, because then you can, you can basically just halve the number of cubits to get the number of metres. It's approximate. So, for example, if a cubit was 50 centimetres, and we said that the temple is 60 cubits long, you can now say, just very quickly in your mind, oh, 30 metres. So it's not exact, 30, it's a bit shorter than 30 metres. But so for example, the temple is 60 metres long, so it's 30, uh, 60 cubits, 30 metres long. It's 20 cubits wide, so 10 metres wide. Then, 
it said that the front entrance was 120 cubits high. <laughs> 60 meters high? What? So hang on, if you're trying to work this out, it's out of all proportion. It's 30 meters long, but the front part is 60 meters high. That's something wrong there. When we go back to the Second Kings account, it says that the front was 20 cubits high, 10 meters. That's in proportion. So we've got two different accounts, one saying that it's 20 cubits or 10 meters high at the front, and this one said it was 120 cubits or 60 meters high at the front. Why is there a difference, one saying 20 and one saying 120? So there's one, um, there's one uh, d like numerical discrepancy right there. Now, uh, how most people understand this is got to do with textual criticism, or it's got to do with copying. So what happens is that you're looking at, um, you know, an, you've got a, a parchment basically that's getting worn out. So what they used to do is get the animals, kill the animals, get their skin, dry the skin, roll it out into strips, write the Bible on it, and then roll it up into a scroll. But you would roll it out to read, roll it back in to close it up, and they do that over and over and over hundreds and thousands of times, and then eventually that leather just starts getting worn out. Just like, you know, you've got leather shoes, you might wear them for years, you might wear them for five or 10 years, but if you wear them regularly, they start to wear out. So then you need new shoes. So when they would get, when the scrolls would wear out, they would get a new one. So they get the new one here, which is blank. You've got the old one here, which is getting worn out, and you, you have it in the spot, and you, the copyist is, is you know, looking at the, what's there, and writing, looking and writing. And so he's looking over here, and he sees the temple was, 20 cubits high, and some for some reason, he's written 120. So there's a copying error of a sort there. And um, so what's happened is the copying error hasn't happened when they were copying the King's scroll, but it's happened when they're copying the Chronicle scroll. So um, it's very, very easy to do. I, I know this because I decided I was gonna write the entire Bible out by hand. And I, a few years ago, I started doing this. I started getting up really early in the mornings and I would write my daily Bible chapter out. And I started with the book of Romans and I found that a chapter was taking me 30 to 40 minutes to write out by hand. But I found I was making mistakes. It was very easy to do. Now, usually most of my mistakes was just writing down the word the twice or leaving out the word the very simple mistakes. And through the Bible, um, I'll talk about textual criticism in a minute, but sometimes you would make a, a, a different mistake where you'd leave an entire other significant word out, or sometimes you would assume what's being said, you'd read it there, and you'd, somehow your mind would interpret it and an extra word would get added in. And those are very rare, those types of copying mistakes, but there's a few of them in the Bible. It would seem like this could be one of them. Now, there's another one of these copying uh, type errors in this chapter as well, and it has to do with the heights of the columns. Here, it said the two columns were 35 cubits high, but in Kings, um, the second Kings account, it said they were 18 cubits high. Now, this caused all sorts of mental gymnastics <laughs> because 18 and 35 don't sound anything like each other because Someone said, oh, maybe they were adding up the two column heights together, you know, like 218s, that's 36. That's kind. And someone said, oh, maybe they were really, maybe they were really 17 and a half cubits high, and they rounded them up to 18, but the actual double height was, you know, 35. 
So all these theories are being proposed, but, um, and I was reading some of the different ones, but when I read, um, oh, I've forgotten the name of the guy, but I was reading his comment and he actually put in his commentary the Hebrew numeral for 18 and the Hebrew numeral for 35. And I tell you what, they are so similar, it's unbelievable. It's a bit like, um, it'd be a bit like uh, P and R. You know, like the capital P and capital R are very similar, but the R has got the little bit that goes down. Capital P like that, and capital R like that with a little bit. See how they're very, very similar? Or E and F, how the letter E and F are very similar. Well, the number 18 and the number 35 in Hebrew are so, they're even more similar than those examples I gave you. Like the difference is just a tiny, tiny little squiggle. So if someone was copying and they saw 18, they could in their mind have just thought, oh, 35 and wrote down 35. Very, very easy to do. And that seems to have been what's happened here. And it makes sense that it's, you know, and if you've got two story versions of the story, how do you know which one's the right one? Well, that's where we get textual criticism. So I'll explain this very quickly, but um, in the New Testament especially, we've got so many copies. So for example, John wrote his original copy of John, but you know, and so we start with one copy, but then people make copies of the copy because everyone wants their own copy. It's not like today where you, you know, printing presses run off a thousand books at once or multiple thousands, but back then everyone made their own copy. So, and everyone of course would be very careful to make the most accurate copy they could. So every church would make its own copy and every church would have its own scroll of John. And um, so what they do now is they round up all the copies that we've still got. And there might be say in the world, say 30 copies of John that they found. And they've all been made from different places and different times. And they look at John 1.1. They've got all the different versions they've got. And they say, wow, you know, 17 of them are exactly the same but uh, five of them have this one little difference with one word missing or whatever. And you, you, by comparing all the copies, you can actually make sure it's completely accurate. And, um, but sometimes with the Old Testament, we don't have as many copies because it's much older. And um, so you, can e you either use the copies if you've got them, or in this case, you could say, well, the temple's cu 20 cubits high it does not make sense to have two pillars out the front that are 35 cubits high. There's nothing on top to hold them down. <laughs> and um, so, but 18 cubits, wow, that's that just fits in nicely under the temple and there's a pillar around them. And so they, through, you know, just thinking about it properly, you realize, no, it's actually 18 and 35 was the copying mistake. Some people are also a little bit bothered by these little mistakes because they think it proves that the word of God is not accurate. And I just have to say something about this. The, the word of God is the message that's conveyed to us. It's not the, the literal exact words. And if it, if it was the literal exact words, then we would all have to learn Hebrew, or we would all have to learn Greek, and we would have to read the original. Otherwise, we would say that our translations are, are, are not the word of God. No, it's the meaning that's the word of God. So you can make a translation into English and that translation has the life of God in it. And so the Lord works through human vessels. So like, for example, you and I, you've got God in you, but you're a weak human being. And so God has worked through weak human beings who wrote down the Bible 
and sometimes they copied and they made a little mistake by leaving out a word or you know making a number a number got changed but fortunately the message of Christ there's nowhere in the entire Bible where the message is affected but sometimes little things like this are touched and affected no the Word of God is still the infallible and the powerful Word of God but the Lord works through weak human beings like you and me so that's one of the interesting things that comes up in this chapter three is all that stuff to do with textual criticism and copying and all of that and um, so very fascinating now in this version of the Bible I read that the temple was 120 cubits high it's also the same in the Revised Standard Version if you read it in the NIV they will have fixed it because they'll have looked at the textual criticism and fixed the number to be 20 so it might not be there in every version of the Bible now there are two other things I want to talk about, three other things I want to talk about. Number one, Solomon started building the temple and it said that they built it at Mount Moriah. Now Mount Moriah is now in Jerusalem, but Jerusalem was small and it was kind of expanding. But Mount Moriah was the place way back in the book of Genesis where Abraham took his son Isaac to offer him as a sacrifice, but the Lord stepped in and provided a ram. So that was Mount Moriah. So the temple is being built right on the same spot where Abraham was going to offer Isaac, but the Lord intervened. And that was a picture of Jesus Christ. So the site was a site which was a picture of Christ. The temple is also a picture of Christ built on the exact same spot. And um, so all of these things are highly symbolic. They remind us of the Lord over and over and over again. And these, all these things are not accidents that they happen like this because God used history and he, he used it all to just speak about the Lord and what he was going to do. Now, here's a question for you. Why did Solomon wait until the second day of the second month of the fourth year of his reign to start building the temple? I was puzzling about this and I have not been able to find a single, now there's lots of Bible commentators, I have not read all of them. I would not even have read 10% of them. I didn't, of all the ones I read, I did not find any comment on this, and I even Googled for this and did not find an answer. So I'm going to give to you my thoughts. But why would Solomon wait four entire years to start building the temple when David made such a big fuss about it? David even gathered all the materials for it. David got all the money to, together. He got all the plans together. He... <laughs> He, he did so much to prepare for this temple. And then in the last year of his reign, David gets Solomon up in front of the whole country and says, you are going to build the temple. And he tells it in front of all the people. They all know this is the important job he has to do. Why would he then not do anything for four whole years? I was pondering about this and I'm pretty sure I figured it out. I think what happened is that David and Solomon were reigning at the same time for four years. So you notice how David is old and Solomon becomes the king while David is still alive. So David's kind of still in charge for four years. This is what you call a co-regency. Now, no one has, has suggested, it's funny, when you look at the dating of all the kings, no one ever allows for this co-regency of the two, but they clearly were both kings at the same time. David ruled for 40 years, Solomon ruled for 40 years, but I have a feeling that four years of their two reigns was overlapped, what they call co-regency, two kings at once. It was a process of handing over, and Solomon was, of course, very young as well, so it made sense that he had a mentor for four years. So there's a handing over period. So why did Solomon wait till the fourth year? Well, that's when he became king on his own. He finally becomes king on his own. 
He goes and offers all the sacrifices to God. God gives him wisdom and he gets into it. He just gets into it straight away. And um, <laughs> I can't say for sure that I'm 100% correct, but it just makes sense to me that Solomon got right into it as soon as he was all his baby. It, that's what you would do. And um, so that's what I think. And it says here that the, the temple, he started building the temple on the second day of the second month of the fourth year of his reign. And that comment there is very, very useful for dating things that are older than this. Because we're able to, we're able to know, there's another scripture that says it was 400 years something from the time that they came out of Egypt until the time of the temple. So because of that, we're able to date the Exodus and other things like that. So it's a very, very handy little scripture. Now, I want to finish with an uh, interesting question, and I'll give you 30 seconds to ponder it. In the, in the Ten Commandments, it's said that the Israelites were not to make graven images. They were not to make, you know... And when they were coming out of Egypt, they made a bull. And, um, you know, God got really wild about that. And um, so here in the temple, they're making images. They're making cherubim. So the Ark of the Covenant has got two angels over it with their wings touching. And then in the actual holy place, there's two whopping big angels standing up with their wings touching like this. And um, why would God say not to make graven images, but then God put images into the temple? What do you think? <laughs> I'll give you five more seconds to think about that one. Well, uh, Matthew Henry is the guy that I read. I was reading about this, and he said that these are not graven images. He, he said a graven image is an idol that you worship. He said, but the Israelites didn't worship these images, that these images were actually of angels who were also, they were worshipping the Lord themselves. Like the one, the two cherub on the Ark of the Covenant were actually bowing down. So these are fellow worshippers of the Lord along with you and I. They're, they remind us that there's an angelic host who are also worshipping the Lord. So they're not graven images in the way that um, you know some people might think. So... I personally think, because all around the world there's been a lot of Christian art. So you go into some places like some cathedrals and the art, stained glass windows for example, it's unbelievable, it's wonderful. They might have stained glass windows of say, um, I went into a church here in Rockhampton, it was St. Mark's Anglican Church, it's, it's an old building, was sold off now, it's turning into a house. But they had a stained glass window of St. Mark there, that was a really nice little stained glass window. Is that a graven image? Well, no, it's not, because we're not worshipping St. Mark, but it's, it's reminding us of the story of St. Mark. You know, if we were to take it to that extreme, then you could never draw a, a picture or draw a drawing or do anything or paint a painting for the Lord. But no, art and culture are wonderful, and it's so nice to have stained glass windows and, and statues and things to remind us. Like if you go to the Crystal Cathedral in California, and there's a picture there of Jesus with a sheep around his neck. It's a statue, a bronze statue. Well, these types of things are wonderful. And a plaque says, the Lord is my shepherd. These things just cause us to think of the Lord. We don't worship them, but they help us to worship him because they cause our hearts to be moved. And that's the difference. And so that's, it's just all wonderful. So Lord, we thank you for Second Chronicles chapter 3. There's a lot in it. We want to thank you, Lord, that the scriptures have come to us and the message has not been changed, <laughs> even though... Sometimes a number got changed, but Lord, I thank you that we're able to even work out what the right number was. 
with textual criticism. And Lord, I thank you that we have, our hearts have been touched by the message of Christ. And I pray that our hearts would be filled with a love for Jesus. And we would want to serve. And we would appreciate now our minds and be open to see how wonderful you are. And I thank you, Lord, that you're our shepherd as well. So bless your name and bless us too, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 